Good afternoon. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. Now, as some regular listeners may know, a few years ago I spent a bit of time in the American Midwest. I had a job that involved me being outdoors quite a bit, and part of my job was leading groups out into the wilderness for a few days at a time. It wasn't the main part of my job. Most of the time I was closer to the centre where we were based, but once in a while, a few times a season, I did have to go a little further afield. Uh, by no means am I a very experienced outdoors person in terms of being in proper wilderness, and though the place I worked uh, was very remote, these periods where I had to go out for longer periods of time in more remote areas took me a little bit out of my comfort zone, I must admit. I did find it very exciting being from a part of the world where countries are small and wilderness is almost non-existent. Uh, I was quite exhilarated by the wide open spaces we had. I won't say exactly where I was, but it was somewhere in the northern regions of the Great Lakes area. So being out in proper wilderness where you could stand up on a, on a peak and look out and see nothing but uh, unbroken forest for as far as the eye could see, that was a big deal for me. It was a big change. And I really got quite interested in the culture that goes along with it. One of the things I was very impressed with in North America was the outdoor culture. I met and worked with a lot of people who were tremendously into hiking, trail running, uh, kayaking, canoeing, all of that sort of thing. By no means am I great at any of those things myself, but I really became quite fond of the culture that goes along with them. And, as you'll probably know, uh, camping culture in particular comes with a lot of weird stories. Now, I'd, on one of these particular trips, I was about three days into the bush, as it were, with a group of teenagers and one other staff member. So, like I said, this was a little bit intense for me. I had done all the requisite training um, and qualifications, but you still, you can't get over the first time you do something like this, you're going to feel a little bit out of your own zone. Now, about three days into the trip, we met another group from the same place that were coming in the opposite direction. They were walking the same trail, just the other way. Uh, I remember it was a great relief to just have a few words with another one of my colleagues, just to trade trail stories. Now, we really did only cross for a few minutes. We were on a very tight schedule and we had to get to where we were going. But I did uh, stop and talk to this fellow just long enough to see that he seemed a little bit jittery, a little bit underslept, as though he'd gone through some kind of intense experience. And so the case turned out to be. When we finally got back to work a few days later, he finally had the time to tell me that he'd had something of an unsettling experience on the trail. As it turned out, one of the nights that he'd been out, uh, him and the group of kids he was with rocked up at one of their assigned campsites. Now the campsites were quite uh, a ways apart from one another, uh, if you got to a campsite and found that for whatever reason uh, it wasn't usable for you, perhaps because there were already people there, or maybe uh, the, the water source you were depending on had dried up uh, for the summer, then you had to decide whether or not it was too late in the day to make the walk, uh, the hike I should say, to the next campsite. So these guys had rocked up while it was already getting dark. They'd had a long day. They'd covered a large amount of miles. The teenagers were getting tired and grouchy. So they set up their camps, they made their food. They were getting ready to settle down for the night. When somebody else came along the trail, it was just a guy. They described him as being a bit backwoodsy. He was wearing plaid. Uh, nothing really that unusual for the area. Most people who were like that up, up in those parts, I've always found to be really nice people. He had a dog with him, but more importantly, he had a gun with him. Now, this made my colleague 
And again, it's not that unusual for the area, but it did make my colleague a little bit unsettled. After all, he was out there in the woods uh, with one other staff member and a bunch of kids. The guy hung around telling stories for a while and then plonked himself down uh, next to them by the campfire. And my friend was kind of politely trying to figure out, you know, what this guy's plan was. Did he intend to move on? And then as the night got later and the guy didn't seem to be showing any um, intention of moving on, my friend started to hint. Think about it. If things had turned bad, if this guy had turned out to be a bit bit crazy, um, they were in a pretty sticky situation. It was dark. Uh, it was, you know, there was nothing around them but forest and the trail. And if they had decided to up sticks and move on, number one, they were many, many miles away from the next campsite. And number two, there was no telling that this guy might not just come along with them. In the end, the guy finally left of his own accord, but not after, not until he had caused them all a couple of hours of extreme discomfort. Now this story kind of impressed upon me the, the, real, the reality of being in such a remote place. Again, it's not an experience we have very often in this part of the world. Uh, the Wide Atlantic Weird Cabin, where I record, of course, being located somewhere at a mysterious location in Essex, which, as mysterious as it is, it does not have the sheer depth of, of wilderness areas that you can properly get lost in and have encounters like this. So, with that in mind, after I returned back from North America in about 2016, uh, I went through a period of becoming really, really interested in the stories that go along with this camping culture. I spent a lot of time on Reddit looking for weird stories that campers told, kind of experiences that made me feel that kind of delicious thrill of being in the wilderness and having something strange happen to you. Even when these stories get a little grim or a little bit scary, they still remind me of camping and good times uh, when I was over in that part of the world. And of course, it tends to cross over with my interest in various kinds of modern folklore and urban legends and even creepypasta, which of course is more like the outright fictional version of these kind of spooky campfire style tales. Now, I've chosen for this episode a few stories that, for me anyway, helped bring back some of that, some of that chill. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that uses tales of the strange, the paranormal, and sometimes a bit of weird fiction in order to ask the question, why do people believe weird things? This episode, All Those Who Wander, strange stories from camping and the great outdoors. So I'm your host, Kean. You join me once again on the porch of the White Atlantic Weird Cabin, surrounded by rustic woodland. Uh, this afternoon, be, this being an afternoon episode, I'm not drinking any of the hard stuff. I have nothing more than a can of Dr. Pepper to get me through this bevy of campfire tales. One thing I'll mention is that I draw a pretty hard and fast distinction between weird tales that are paranormal and those that are not. I do enjoy both kinds, but to me, my brain just shunts them into quite different and discrete categories. I can very much enjoy a tale of the paranormal and kind of get into the groove of, well, if not believing it, at least rolling with it if it's a well-told tale. 
but I find it quite jarring to shift from a tale of maybe strange people or scary serial killers, uh, something that could happen in real life, and then to shift gears and go into something more spooky or paranormal. It really doesn't sit well for me. So for this episode, I've chosen only non-paranormal stories. That is not to say that they are all strictly true. Most of these stories have been uh, picked from Reddit and places like that. Places I've discovered interesting stories over the years, which of course is not to say that they definitely happened. As we tell each story, I'll give a little background afterwards and let you know whether or not I was able to find out anything about the origin of the story, or whether it's just one of those mysterious copy pastas that has been passed around the internet. In some cases, there's an obvious uh, origin for the story, but most of the time there isn't. Again, giving these stories a bit of that urban legend flavor that I like so much. So here's the first story. I gave it a title myself in my notes, but I'm not going to say, I'm not going to give it to you uh, just in case it spoils a little of the story. So here we go. I don't know anything about the origin to this one, who wrote it. It pops up on various Reddit threads uh, and it's one of my favorite ones. Story number one. When I was about 18, me and some friends took a road trip about seven hours or so down to the Apalachicola National Forest near Tallahassee, Florida. We were going to do a little car camping, drink a few ice cold natty lights. You know, 18 year olds stuff. As such, we didn't want to be bothered by any park rangers, so we drove way deep into the woods. Got there, set up camp, had said natty lights, and me and a guy decided to go do a little exploring. So we walked about 100 yards from our site back to the main road, saw another path directly across from us and started walking. Immediately, we started seeing signs that someone had lived there for a while. Big bags of trash, stuff like that. Should have been a huge red flag to turn around. But, you know, 18, nothing could hurt us. So we get to this campsite of an older white guy living out of his van. Clothesline strung up, coolers placed around it, and a big gorgeous dog, I think maybe a golden retriever. We tried to back out, but he sees us and he starts talking. Now, he's friendly enough, asks us where we're from, tells us about some cool spots to check out in the park, and we end up chatting for about 10 minutes and then going on our way. I kept thinking to myself how odd it was that he gave directions in steps, not yards or miles. Guy always seemed to be off balance. Not like stumbling drunk, but like he was walking on a balance beam, swaying side to side. Oh, and he was super excited to talk about national parks and forests where we were from. Okay, camping part over. We went back to our tents. Fast forward two months, same buddy calls me late at night and tells me to turn on the TV to the news. I oblige. I see an old dude with a van. You see where this is headed, but I didn't, so I get pissed at my friend for waking me up. He says, no, watch. And then I see the golden retriever, and it all clicks. What the fuck? That man's name was Gary Michael Hilton, convicted of at least four murders. He kidnapped and murdered a girl on Blood Mountain, Georgia, an older couple in the Pisgah, North Carolina, and a girl in the Apachicola at the same campsite not long after we left. Yes, the very same places he had been talking to us about. Obviously, we called the cops. They put us in touch with the FBI. Now, the F is for Florida. And we get flown down to take investigators to the campsite, point out every spot we saw anything, tell them exactly what he told us, and show them the places he described to us. I didn't find out until after the trial, 
but apparently they found what appears to be partially destroyed human finger bones in an area near the site. I had to fly down again to testify. As a coda to this story, uh, a user named Maybe M comments saying, maybe he already had a woman inside and his goal was to get rid of these guys, which I think adds a little spookiness to the tale. <clears throat> now, whether or not this story is true, really it's up to you to decide, as that old cop-out thing goes on paranormal shows. But it's definitely a trope in urban legends uh, to invoke a real serial killer and then to make a story where a random person has a, you know, a chance encounter with them. This is quite an old trope, re actually, because even in the, in the years shortly after the Jack the Ripper murders in the 1880s, this became a bit of a, a trope that you would see in both in urban legends of the time and also in weird fiction. There was a short story called The Lodger, which eventually became a novel and I believe a stage show as well, in which it turns out that the titular lodger who is staying at somebody's house, they later find out was in fact Jack the Ripper. So this whole story of, you know, having a close encounter with someone who seemed creepy and then later on it turns out they were some super famous murderer, it has a long, has a long history, quite a precedent. And we'll have at least one more story in today's episode uh, that goes along the same lines. Now this next story really weirded me out when I first read it. I've seen it in several places but I've been unable to track down an author for it. It's been reposted in a lot of different places but usually uh, it, the name associated with it is not clear. If anybody out there actually knows who the author was, please feel free to get in touch and uh, let me know. The title I've given this one, or I've seen it under, is Hunted on the Pacific Crest Trail. After posting this on r slash unresolved mysteries, I was encouraged to post my experience here. It actually turns out another Redditor and I may have witnessed the same people I will soon tell you about. This story ended up being much longer than I had originally anticipated, and I apologise for the long read. I will say that in all the years I've told this story, people usually respond, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. So I hope you take the time to enjoy it. This story occurred in the summer of 2008. I grew up in Oregon and was acquainted with the outdoors from an early age. My favorite hobby came to be hiking, particularly in areas that are either very dangerous or isolated. The health benefits of hiking were secondary to the thrills of walking the edges of exposed cliffs, being in cougar and bear territory, and knowing that I was far from help. Into the Wild was released in the fall of 2007, and I immediately fell in love. Being a high school senior, I could barely go another week living in my parents' house. The movie spoke to my sense of adventure and inspired me to hike the California portion of the Pacific Crest Trail upon graduation. I made it from the Mexico border to Northern California without much incident, I saw rattlesnakes and black bears, experienced dehydration, but nothing happened that made me fear for my life. Somewhere in the Lassen National Forest in northeastern California, I walked around a bend in the trail, only to be startled by two people sitting on a rock dressed in nearly all white. Their faces were dirty, their appearance dishevelled, and the man had a long, unkempt beard. Both seemed to be in their forties, 
they looked like the couple who had kidnapped Elizabeth Smart. What struck me as odd about the encounter was encountering anybody at all. I frequently went days without seeing a single human being. Their white clothes could be explained away by the need to escape the California summer sun. Their scruffy appearance could be explained away by the fact that most thru-hikers abandon personal hygiene on the trail. After I said hello, they said nothing and simply watched me as I passed. Even that I didn't find odd. I chalked it up to them being foreign and not knowing what to say. I camped a few hundred yards off the trail that night, as I always did. Following bear precautions, I hung the leftover food I had cooked that night from a tree approximately five feet off the ground. Packing up camp in the morning, I noticed the food wasn't there. I immediately thought a bear had entered my campsite, and so I began to look for paw prints. I didn't find paw prints, but I did find boot prints circling the campsite, two pairs of them. One of those prints led right up the rope from which the food was hanging. I thought of the couple I had passed earlier, and everything clicked. I quickly packed up and left. My mind was racing the entire day, but I figured the couple was simply hungry. If they had had nefarious intentions, they would have come for more than food. Several days passed, and my mind was at ease again. I had begun to circle my campsite with sticks to wake me in the event of an intruder, animal or otherwise. I awoke in my tent one night to the sound of those sticks crunching. I grabbed my hunting knife. I tried to relax by telling myself that in the middle of nowhere, the source of that noise is much more likely an animal than a person. Then I heard frantic whispering. It was impossible to tell which direction the voices were coming from. Being in the dark, surrounded by trees, a hundred miles from the nearest city, plays tricks on your senses. I debated yelling out, claiming to have a gun, but instead decided to be silent and retain the benefit of surprise. I heard footsteps circling my tent and was ready to slash. But just like that, it was over. No more footsteps, no more whispering. I lay frozen, awake in my tent until sunrise and opened my tent to find nobody there. The only evidence something had actually happened with the boot prints, the same as before. Several more days passed and I was now in Shasta National Forest, probably 50 to 75 miles from where I first encountered the couple. The trail became more or less a goat trail. Being on the side of a mountain and above the tree line, I could see the trail winding for miles in front and behind me. I stopped for water in the rare shade and noticed two hikers miles behind me. All I could see were two white dots moving along the mountainside. I immediately said out loud, fuck this, the trip is over. I pulled out my map and looked for the nearest town, which appeared to be Castella, located off I-5. The only problem was that it was 25 miles away. I hiked well into the night, trying to gain as much ground as possible. I kept losing the trail and decided to set up camp, this time far off the trail and into the forest. I got in my tent and tried to sleep, but every little noise kept me awake. After a few hours in my tent, I heard the telltale signs of another bad night. The footsteps, the whispering, the sticks breaking. Sound travels far in the absence of other sound. I knew they were close, but wasn't sure how close. All I could think was, this is fucked up, this is so fucked up, god damn it. Finally, a flashlight hits my tent, lighting up the entire thing, then goes dark. I unzipped my tent and climbed out carrying my knife, yelling nonsense into the dark. 
It was sort of like that cliché scene in movies where people in the wilderness hear sticks breaking around them and the camera pans around the trees because the people have no idea which direction the sound is coming from. Then I heard footsteps running towards the tent and barely made out a figure moving in my peripheral vision. I turned and ran deep into the forest. I tripped several times and ran into several trees. After running for approximately five minutes, I tripped, rolled and came to rest next to a downed tree. I got under the tree trunk and laid still. I saw the flashlight moving around in the distance. I laid under that tree for hours. I was certain they were gone, but I didn't move. Eventually birds started chirping and I knew sunrise would come soon. Once it did, I made my way back to the trail, abandoned my campsite and walked the rest of the distance to Castella, where the Pacific Crest Trail crosses I-5. I hitchhiked my way to the town of Mount Shasta and spoke with the police and forest service. They put me up in a motel for the night and my parents drove from Oregon to pick me up the next day. I followed up with the police and forest service months later who told me there had been similar reports of items disappearing from campsites throughout the surrounding national forests. However, there had been no other reports of the terrorizing that I experienced. As far as I know, nothing ever came of the couple. few things to note here. In the comments um, following this story on some of the Reddit threads, a few people chip in to tell similar stories, nothing as intense as this one. Um, and again, there's no way of ever saying whether or not these things are really true, but there seem to be quite a few people who uh, also agree that there is something weird going on in the vicinity of Mount Shasta. Now, anyone who has an interest in things strange or paranormal might have heard of Mount Shasta. It has definitely a prominent place in the New Age community in, in the north of California. Uh, it has a weird supposed history involving um, people who are refugees from lost civilizations, such as it's linked often to Lemuria, even Atlantis. There's a lot of weird stories to say that there are cities hidden underneath the ground at the base of the mountain and that this is where the inhabitants of these long lost civilizations now live. And there are supposedly grandmasters in there who will grant powers to people who can contact them. For this reason, it's certainly true that a few kind of fringe hippie or new age groups have sprung up in the vicinity of Mount Shasta. Some of them just appear at certain times of year for festivals. Some of them seem to live in communes or compounds all year round. So I think it's entirely possible to believe that anyone hiking in the vicinity of the mountain might come across some strange folks. It's not something I've looked into extensively, so I can't say for sure. But according to the people following up this up on Reddit anyway, uh, this person's story is not the only uh, time uh, somebody had a strange experience with seemingly cult members uh, on the trail surrounding Mount Shasta. The next story actually has a name. This is called The Tent in the Trees and it's by somebody, a poster, who called themselves Randoliev. This story takes place in August of 2013 in the mountains of southern Oregon. I am a US Air Force Security Forces airman like a military policeman. My girlfriend was at work and as a swelteringly hot day began to turn into thunderstorms, my buddy Nick, another military cop, and I decided to go explore some back roads and get out of the heat in town. 
Southern Oregon is crisscrossed with logging roads, some actively used and many totally forgotten and grown over. Nick and I spent many of our days starting on roads that we knew, finding roads we didn't know, driving for hours into the mountains, eventually navigating back to paved roads. On this particular day, with storm clouds building over the mountains, we set off on a road we had never been on and began the drive into the mountains. After driving for around an hour, we hadn't seen or heard any signs of other people in the woods. We rounded a bend in the thick fir woods and emerged in a meadow that was totally surrounded by thick aspen groves. The meadow was perfectly flat and eerily still. We both noticed the strange stillness almost immediately. No birds, hardly any insect noise, no squirrels and certainly no other people. On the far side of the meadow, right at the edge of the tree line, there was a picnic table. The table was very odd, however. It was painted a bright orange and was much larger than a typical picnic table in a park. Remarking on this, Nick drove through the meadow to get a closer look. I remember being apprehensive as we approached. The whole scenario was exceptionally strange. The overall silence of the aspen grove was unsettling. Also, it was nearly impossible to see far into the trees as aspens grow extremely close together. When we parked by the table, I hopped out of the passenger seat of the truck to check it out. I'm not very tall, only about 5'5". Regardless, the table was ridiculously oversized and practically unusable. The seats were nearly at chest level, meaning I would have to climb up to even sit on them. As I was looking at the table, Nick called me over to the truck and I noticed he was looking back into the aspens. At first, I couldn't see what he was looking at, but then I noticed a splash of colour that was completely out of place in the thick trees. A small one-man tent was set back in the trees, about 50 feet from the strange table. I had an initial feeling of dread and felt certain that there was someone in the tent and if we could see the tent, they could see us. There were no campgrounds in this area, no people, no main roads for miles. Surely someone camping so remotely would be, at the very least, a strange person. However, as we observed the tent, we didn't see any movement or hear any sounds coming from it. Nick suggested I call out. I didn't want to, but I did. Hey, anyone in there? I yelled. No reply. Feeling completely on edge, Nick and I thought about driving away and leaving this strange area. But we began to fear the worst. What if there was a body in the tent? What if somebody had gotten kidnapped? Foolish, I know, but we thought it all the same. After some debate, we decided to have Nick turn the truck around to drive away from the camp. Should we need to leave in a hurry, he'd be waiting behind the wheel. With my heart pounding, I started walking through the trees towards the tent. I was totally keyed up with my senses on full alert. When I reached the campsite, several things struck me as odd. Backpacks were scattered all over. No fire had been built, no wood collected. The tent, the tent was literally full of backpacks and women's clothing. Full of dread, I turned to leave and tell Nick what I had seen. As I left, I heard Nick start yelling, let's go, let's get the fuck out of here. Not knowing why he was yelling, I ran back to the truck. When I broke out of the trees, I saw a beat up old Ford Taurus on the road, blocking us from leaving the meadow. I immediately leapt into the passenger seat and Nick floored the gas pedal. The car was occupied by two men. A third person was laying across the window in the back. As we drove across the meadow, the driver attempted to block us from the road, but Nick drove around them and accelerated the way we had come from. I looked back 
and saw the car attempting to turn around on the narrow road. Nick drove like a madman, and though I was honestly terrified that they would catch up, we hit the highway without seeing the car again. I still do not know if the person in the back was male or female. I called the state police and they promised to send a trooper out to check out the scene. However, I received a call the next day from a trooper stating that the campsite, the backpacks and the women's clothing were all gone, though he could tell people had been in the area. The strange table was still by the thick aspen grove. I have not returned to the area and do not intend to. Now, when I first came across this story years ago, I have a distinct memory that in the comments there was a back and forth between the poster who wrote the story and a few other people as they were trying to track down the exact location where this happened. I have a distinct memory of uh, somebody going so far as to find the, what they thought was the location on Google Earth and posting links to it. I checked it out myself at the time and uh, there was uh, the open meadow with the strange orange table in the centre of it and the location was suitably remote and far away from any towns or cities or main roads as it seems to be in the story. While looking for that original post this week I was unable to find it uh, but there is uh, some back and forth between the poster and other people again just fleshing out the story a little bit. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true but it does make it seem slightly more believable. One strange direction the story goes into is that they eventually start to tie um, the, the, the strange people in the, in the Ford to a particular murderer, a guy named James DiMaggio. This fellow was uh, eventually killed by the FBI in a shootout at a place called the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, a great name, a place in Idaho, and that happened in 2013, though uh, around about the time when this story supposedly happened, he was active in uh, Oregon, and apparently the guy who wrote this story seems to think that some of his methods uh, link with the things that he saw himself. Again, not something that can be proved either way, but just notice how often it is that these stories tend to get tied to uh, a popular or well-known serial killer. My last story is a short one and also a change of scene. This story is just called Alters by somebody called Libby Libby Libby, great name. And this one takes place down under. Bushwalking in New South Wales, Australia, me and my friend came across this weird platform looking thing made out of rocks. Later that year, the cops arrested some bloke on suspicion of the murders of a series of backpackers who had gone missing over the course of a few years. And at the sites of several of the murders, slightly off in the bush were these altars current affairs shows ran footage of one. The trial and the run-up to it were all over the news. And yeah, it's that thing we found. The altars were typically no more than 300 yards from the victims' 300 yards from the victims' shallow graves. The guy who was arrested and subsequently convicted for the murders is Ivan Malat, Australia's worst serial killer. NB, the cops are pretty sure that at least one other person was involved in the murders. They just couldn't prove it. So, just a short story, but one that does fit into the pattern I've noticed of linking uh, someone having just a small unexplained encounter with a much more famous serial killer. Ivan Malat, well, what is there to say? He really was Australia's worst serial killer. He's the inspiration for the guy from those horrible movies, the uh, Wolf Creek movies, and he was a really, really, really sick guy. 
if it indeed you believe that he was the killer. There's I've only just discovered there are folks who believe that he was set up or that he was working with other people, potentially from his own family, and that he was set up. But Malat uh, has never admitted to any of the murders, seven plus, maybe more, that were attributed to him. Whoever was doing it was a pretty messed up individual. There was a lot of stabbings and a lot of shotgun shootings to, to kill them. It's a really incredible and disturbing story, well worth looking into if you're not familiar with the details of it. Um, one thing I will say is that I've been unable to find verification of this story of the altars. So Malat was many things, if indeed he was the murderer, but there doesn't seem to have been much of a ritual element to what he did, as messed up as he was. Now I've got a few potential leads on this one. The only places I can find that say that he did anything ritual-esque or something that could be interpreted as a building a little altar next to or near his victims are from some pretty disreputable sites. Uh, David Icke websites and kind of fringe conspiratorial thinking and stuff like that. I can't find any mainstream sources uh, as this story claims that say that there was anything uh, approaching the altar. The only thing I can find is that because Milat dumped most of his victims' bodies in an Australian national park. He did cover them up with sticks and branches and leaves, but that was more to cover them up so they wouldn't be found rather than for anything that might be interpreted as uh, a ritual purpose. There, there's some interesting stuff in the comments for this one. We have somebody pointing out that in 2011, Malat went on a hunger strike while in prison in an unsuccessful attempt to be given a PlayStation. The next commenter says, I was more surprised that he managed to cut off his pinky with a plastic knife. And the first commentator says, My stepfather was the warden who took him to hospital after he did that. He said he used the knife like a saw and started pulling flesh off until he got down to the bone, then just grabbed it and twisted it round until it snapped off. Crazy stuff. Even if Malat was not responsible for the murders or if he alone didn't carry them out, he seems to have been a pretty twisted guy. So that takes us to the end of this episode of Spooky Outdoor Stories. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'm Kean. I'm coming to you from the White Atlantic Weird Cabin. If you like what you hear, please do get in touch. Uh, one way of doing that is on Twitter, which not my favourite place in the world right now, but let's all try and make it a better place. We are at Strange Ireland. If you'd like to say something fun, something weird, something creepy, if you'd like to send on any stories yourself, either that you've heard, read, or maybe even one that happened to you yourself. Let's talk about reviews quickly. I've started using a new app for podcasting. Well, it's not new to most of you, but it's new to me. That's Stitcher. And I've realized that you can't actually review on it. Now, a few people have said this to me. Uh, I'd always presumed that all apps were as easy to review as the uh, iPhone, uh, the Apple podcast app that I use. This is not the case. Stitcher forces you to go and leave reviews on your laptop or main computer if indeed you want to. Seems like a bit of a pain. I don't see why they wouldn't make that simpler for you. But just so you know, that's what you have to do. Or you just go to the Stitcher website on your computer and leave reviews that way. If uh, you are somebody who uses the standard Apple podcast app, then it's much easier. The reviews uh, function is at the bottom of every single podcast that you see. Uh, I'll read out a few more nice ones as soon as we get them. So until then, keep listening, send in your weird stories, and we promise to believe you. 